Providence Orthodox Presbyterian Church. We have the call to worship this evening. Uh, there are no other pressing announcements. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. Know ye that the Lord, He is God. It is He that hath made us, and not we ourselves. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. Let's bow our hearts and heads in sign of preparation. Let us arise and sing to our Lord hymn 311, 311. God Almighty, for the work of your Son from eternity past and into time and space and the incarnation, Lord, and thankful for his continued love and dedication toward us by your covenant grace here and now. Be with us, we pray, in your spirit, especially, Lord, as we honor you and worship you this evening. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, amen. You may be seated. Let us turn to hymn 315, 315.
Psalm 128b, 128b. Children on your people 
Lord, be peace. Amen. Let us go ahead and pray. We indeed come before you, Lord, praying for the peace of Israel, that is the peace upon the people of God, as is commonly called the church. Lord Jesus, may we indeed have the peace that passes understanding, and that we would embrace the great gospel message of hope and deliverance in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And this evening in particular, God, as we finish this, your day, as we are being equipped by the worship of you, and also, therefore, Lord, from this, as we are drawn close to you, we are therefore uh, being brought into better preparation for this week. We think in terms, Lord, of our vocation and calling in life. All of us, God, have a particular place in this world, in your kingdom. And Lord, may we be faithful in such an endeavor, whether we are single or married, whether we have children or no children, God, uh, whether we are going to school or not going to school uh, as citizens of this nation, Lord, and whatever else we find responsibilities and duties that we have for one another and our neighbors, God, that is our calling and our vocation in life. May we, Lord, continue to pray and work to the end to be useful, to do good works in our calling and our vocation to find opportunities to do these things. Our Lord and Savior, may we do it well as unto you. May we do it consistently, God. And uh, certainly, Lord, we will fail. We will sin. We will fall down six, yes, Lord, seven times, but we will rise again, God Almighty, because you have your Spirit as promised in your Word within us. May we persevere and be encouraged thereby that we have the gift of the Holy Spirit. And accordingly, Lord, we pray in our duties and responsibilities as stewards of all the things that we have, God, that is ultimately yours, that we have, as it were, renting it or having it temporarily, God, for certainly we're not going to take it with us when we pass into glory. And so for all the things here that within our possession and reach, Lord, may we use it unto you, may we use it for one another, may we use it for our family and for our friends, for the church of the living God, to the extent that is useful, to the extent that we are able, God, for our time, our talents, and our opportunities, Lord. Indeed, part of our vocation and calling in life is to be a steward, is to be a one who takes care of the things that are ultimately yours, for you own all things in this creation, for you are the creator and maker of all things. And so, gracious God, Help us, we pray, to continue to have such a heart of submission to you and obedience to your word, that we would take seriously our vocation, take seriously our stewardship, that is our duty as a servant in your household, God Almighty. May we take stock of what we have and what we don't have and not be, uh, Lord, become envious of what we don't have, what other people have, Lord, and the like, God, but rather to accept our limitations, to accept what you have for us, Lord, to take care of, take care of our small little talents. Lord, however small or large it may be in the eyes of others, it matters not, is what you have given us, and may we use it and multiply it for your namesake. We lift up opportunities, Lord, to that end, perhaps with some of our funds, Lord, and those that we know that we pray for, for home missions, to expand the kingdom of God here in America, in our own backyard, for those that we love, Lord, and pray for out of compassion for our fellow citizens, God, that you would help the efforts of the General Assembly Committee in particular, Lord, to have the wisdom and the funds and the unity needed to continue to raise up evangelists, the pastors, Lord, that are there to establish new churches. And God, give those pastors the strength they need, the wisdom to understand the particular place they find themselves in, the country or the city or the suburbs, God, somewhere in America, and that they would understand that little slice of America, that subculture there, and be able to talk and find people and especially, Lord, to find the sheep, the lost sheep, God, and call them unto you. May you gather, Lord, more into the number, as you've promised in your word, through our feeble efforts in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. We ask, God, that you would strengthen our ministers to preach the whole counsel of God, to preach it with wisdom and proper application, God Almighty, that they would not be discouraged, but rather encouraged to continue on in their duties as evangelists, as those who are starting home missions work, and be with their families as well, God, that they would have the help and encouragement and support that they need as well in being part of a family, uh, pastor's family, God, in this case, an evangelist, which is a little different, Lord. Instead of being established and having a church already there, they have to go out to the highways and the byways in unique fashion. And so, Lord, we pray that our efforts are proved fruitful by your Spirit, not only for the efforts of the General Assembly Committee, but also our presbyteries that are involved in home missions, establishing new churches in the regional area of 
the presbytery and also local churches that can also uh, lend their abilities, lend their stewardship, Lord, lend their opportunities and monies and resources, perhaps, God, if possible. Give us wisdom, understanding, God, to pay attention to where is a good place to preach and where are places, Lord, that perhaps you've shut the door and we are being too stubborn and not seeing it, God. You certainly did this to Paul. He had to accept your providence in closing off parts of Asia. And, Lord, we could be <clears throat> sometimes... Um, blind to these facts, God. Sometimes you do indeed shut things before us, and we must accept your will, God, and go somewhere else, perhaps. Whatever the case is, Lord, again, we pray in a similar fashion for our presbyteries and our local churches, God, that they would have proper coordination, proper unity in the funding they need, but again, above all, to always accept your will in wherever they are in their plan to establish local churches. And so, Lord, we also ask that you'd continue to be with us and our bodies, Lord, that we would take care of them as best we can to help those who are, again, dealing with ailments and sicknesses at this time of year when we're stuck indoor. We think of those who are shut-ins, who can't have easy access to the church, that we continue to pray and encourage them, if possible, Lord, with phone calls or letters, and certainly our prayers, our God and Savior. Help us, God, we pray in your providence, as only you can, to continue to have access to good food, to healthy food, uh, that, Lord, we would uh, be able to have the funds to have access to good, healthy food as well, and good doctors, God, that we would not have an undue or a bad economy, as it seems to be in many and sundry ways, uh, become worse, Lord, and become more expensive for us to get the foods that we need for our body and good access to health and the like. We pray and ask, Lord, that we would not be discouraged in these matters, but continue to do what we can to ask for help if need be, uh, for these matters, Lord, we have the diaconate just for such a thing for those in the body of Christ who need material aid beyond what they can get for themselves and for their family. Our Lord and Savior, pray, we ask that you continue to help our church to do what we can to serve in your kingdom, both individually and collectively. May your name be glorified, our Lord and Savior, this week. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. We now have the tithes and offerings. rise praise God from whom all blessings flow him all creatures here below praise him above ye heavenly host praise Father Son and Holy Ghost Indeed, God Almighty, we praise you all the days of our life and may this offering be acceptable in your sight through Christ Jesus and be used with much wisdom for the establishment, Lord, if possible, of more churches in America. In your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Let us turn to our Bibles to Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. 1, 3 through 14, so we are continuing our series through the basics of the Christian faith, which covers a number of well-known passages to be sure. Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, let us listen attentively to the Word of God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy without blame before Him in love having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, in him. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, 
that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who was the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Let us pray. Indeed, God, we praise and glorify you, God. We lift you up, not only in our prayers, but through our songs, God, in hearing with reverence your word to learn and to be encouraged thereby and strengthened by your spirit to glorify you all the more as we delve more detail of the gospel, the good news of salvation for lost sinners. In particular, God, that salvation is accomplished and focused upon the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It is you first to last. We are brought in, God, into your presence because of your desire to deliver and save us. And we read in this passage especially how the gospel of salvation although is for us, lost sinners, is ultimately about you, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. To your glorious praise we pray. Amen. Non-Christian religions, all other religions besides Christianity, the religion of the Bible, are man-centered. They either leave men to his own devices, or if they offer assistance at all, it's still left up to man at the end of the day, even with the assistance. Men and women are called to mediate and deprive themselves, perhaps, or to help their neighbor or tithe or whatever else. Good works is defined by this or that world system. Whatever it is, it is good works done by men to appease God. But not so with Christianity. This makes it unique amongst the religions. And that uniqueness is found in its view of how someone gets saved. You may be thinking they get saved by trusting in Jesus, and that is true. But that is not unique as you would think. No, what is unique is that the Christian view is God-centered. It is not about saving men as such. That is but a step to the ultimate goal of glorifying God and enjoying Him forever. That happens. Men do get saved, but that is not the final goal. It is God-centered because salvation is about God's glory, first and last. And therefore, we see it in the act of redemption. For as we know, faith itself is what? A gift of God, of the Holy Spirit in particular. So even in that act of faith that we indeed exercise, for God does not have faith for us. He does not believe in our stead. But that we do believe we glorify God because we know it's not native to us. So it's still about him. And in fact, the object of faith is God above, not ourselves. And so we see then that the glory is especially seen in the fact from beginning to end, God is involved intimately from first to last as the Alpha and Omega of our redemption, even in the giving of their faith. As Ephesians 1 shows the glorious fashion that it is God-centered in salvation. And it is offensive, therefore, to many people when they hear this, unfortunately. And so salvation is part one here. Salvation is by the Father's selection from eternity past. The first point, verses 3 through 6. What we have here in Ephesians, if you recall, verses 3 through 14 of chapter 1, is a Trinitarian doxology, or a theology of praise. Praise lifting up God, and is done in a threefold fashion. It talks about the Father, it talks about the Son, and it talks about the Holy Spirit. So verses 3 through 6 we read, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So the object here of these opening verses, what he's talking about, what he's describing here, is the Father and the work of the Father and how he has blessed us in heavenly places, especially through the work of Christ, or in Christ, just as he, the Father, it has not changed, chose us in him, that is Christ, before the foundation of the world. The blessings in the heavenly places, so the origins of our redemption, of all good things in the Christian life, specifically the good things of the soul, spiritual blessings, comes from heaven. Its origination is there, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessings in the heavenly places, emphasizing the source. Because it's obviously not saying, the blessings are up there, but you're down here, sorry. No, but rather that's the origination of it in the sense that we are brought into 
that blessing that we are brought into heaven, as it were. That is the graciousness of God, that perfect place of mercy and compassion upon us. Every blessing. Salvation is part of that blessing, obviously. Where did it come from? The blessings come from God. Salvation comes from God. It was not about man. Adam and Eve hid from God, but God saved them nevertheless. The redemption is from Him, and the blessings, all spiritual blessings, include whatever it is that means being saved or redeemed. In particular, he highlights one of the great blessings of being chosen. Verse 4, just as He, the Father, chose us in Him, that is, Jesus our Lord and Savior. When? Before the foundation of the world, which is a roundabout way of saying before the creation of all things. It's a different way of saying it. How, how, how the Hebrews would say it in the Old Testament. We would say from creation onward, before creation. They say from the foundation or the establishment of this world, to use that metaphor as the language there. Not yesterday, when someone decided to believe that God say, I'm going to save you. None of this, well, he looked down the quarters of time and said, you know, Phyllis here is going to choose me, so I'll choose her, well, because she chose me. Nothing along those lines here. It says, just as he chose us and him before the foundation of the world, before you even existed, that we should be holy. Having predestined us, verse 5, that's pretty clear. So he says it twice. He chose us from eternity past. He predestined us. The word itself tells you it is before time and space, this choosing. Specifically, he predestined us to adoption as sons of or by Jesus Christ to himself according to his good pleasure of his will. And that is another blessing on top of being chosen from eternity past, is being chosen to a particular end. He talks a little bit about that purpose or end that we would be holding without blame in verse 4, and he gets more specific here in verse 5, to adoption. We're not just simply saved and therefore left to go off on your own, but he brings us into the number, the holy number of the body of Christ. We are his sons and daughters, the royalty now of the King of kings and Lord of lords. It's a blessing from heaven. It's one of the blessings he's listing here that is for us. Adopted people don't select their parents. They're selected by their parents as a general rule. And that's what's highlighted here. God has adopted us, chosen us, the Father selected us. And from this imagery of adoption, we also have, again, the imagery of choosing, of God's loving hand and compassion being brought upon us, that every spiritual blessing has its origin in God Almighty, in the heavenly places, and beyond the earthly places, beyond you, beyond man and his will. It's God's will, God's will in Christ to give us salvation from eternity past. So that deliverance we speak of, that God-centric approach to salvation is seen here in God choosing, God predestinating, and God adopting. Salvation is the Father's selection from eternity to the praise of His glorious grace. Uh, Verse 6 we read there, to the praise of His glorious grace. That refrain is done two other times after each section. Point 2. Salvation is by the Son's saving on the cross. Not just the Father's selection, but the Son's saving, verses 7 through 12. In Him, we have redemption through His blood. Obviously, speaking of Jesus Christ, He is the one who shed His blood. He's the one who had a body. It still has a body even now, a resurrected body. The forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace, which He made abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, and goes on to describe uh, that wisdom and prudence that is to expound the glories of the gospel that were a mystery before but now is revealed, verse 9, and that, verse 10, all things will be finally brought together in the redemption that Christ has brought for his body that is in heaven above the saints who are up there and we on earth will be brought to him and brought into uh, the fullness when Christ returns. And in verse 11, he goes back to the idea of obtaining an inheritance in Christ and being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things. So predestination is mentioned again here, specifically in the context of the work of Christ. Because multiple themes, as you can see, Paul's really excited. He's saying a lot of things. This is very dense. 
A lot of interwoven themes going back and forth, but what I want to highlight again, verses 3 through 6 is talking about God the Father, and God shows us in Christ, and God has predestined us, and God has adopted us. And now, in verses 7 and following to 12, it's in Him, that is Christ, through the forgiveness of His blood, Christ shed His blood for us. In Christ we have an obtained an inheritance. He is the firstborn, He has given us an inheritance of redemption, uh, that we who first trusted in Him should be to the praise of of his glory. There's that refrain again, to the praise of his glory or praise of his glorious grace, as he says in verse 6. So redemption through his blood. This is often what we think of salvation. I am saved by the redemption, by the redemption we brought and bought by Jesus Christ and the shedding of his blood upon this earth, that he indeed really came and died for us. He suffered as we saw this morning. The second member of the Trinity ordained to live and die as a man, and raise again from the dead for his people to give us full redemption. We are redeemed from the power of sin and Satan because of the work of Christ for us. So we see here the picture of eternity past, the Father selecting us, and then 2,000 years ago where Christ comes into space and time and walks among, among us for about 33 years and lives in our stead and dies in our stead and is raised again from the dead in our stead. And so we see a progression in time closer to us here and now and the work. Each member of the Trinity has a work, what we call the technical terms, the economic Trinity. That is, they each agreed from eternity past from the covenant of redemption to have a particular role and duty with respect to us in time and space. Not as though the Son is inferior to the Father or the Holy Spirit is inferior to the Father and the Son, but rather they all agreed to these respective uh, roles and deliverances and activities for our redemption. We read not only of predestination in verse 11, but again that refrain here at the end of verse 12, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. And that is to highlight that the redemption that we have is by grace and grace alone. That is unmerited favor. There's nothing that you have done that God said, I'm going to, I'm going to save you. I'm going to choose you. Nothing that you have ever thought or will ever think enough. You can never be good enough that Christ said, you know, you're worth dying for. You have value outside of the blood of Christ that I should go through all this pain for you. Right? We are wretched sinners. That's the context behind here. The Ephesians knew that they needed redemption. They knew their sin. They knew they violated God's holy law in thought, word, and deed and are deserving of damnation for eternity for dishonoring, in the worst gross sense, violating God's eternal law. Therefore, requires eternal punishment. Church membership, being good enough, all these things are not enough, but rather it's according to the riches of his grace. He says there, and according to all how he works all things, verse 11, according to the counsel of his own will. And of course that will is a good will. It's a gracious will. It's a merciful will. So he says it so many different ways that it's grace, 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 grace. You see the grace in choosing. You see the grace in adopting. You see the grace in predestination. You see the grace in Christ shedding his blood. You see the grace here that he works all things for our redemption according to the counsel of his will, not your will, not Satan's will, not my will. According to his good pleasure. He didn't consult us. He didn't consult anybody for he is... What's one of the attributes we went over? The three eyes. He's independent. So now you see the importance of understanding the attributes of God, the incommunicable attributes, that he cannot be dependent upon. He's not going to sit there and ask you, you know, what do you think? Or, if you're good enough, I'll get you there. He's like, you're never going to be good enough. I'm not going to bend my law, I'm not going to grade on a curve, is what that would be called in school, right? Grading on a curve. I'll give you that extra 10%, I feel sorry for you. None of that. And then he would be dependent upon us, and of course he would break his holiness. Absolutely holy, absolutely pure, absolutely righteous. And to grade on a curve would to 
cast into doubt that righteousness, that holiness, that perfection of God Almighty. And as we know, he found a way to what is to us an impossible problem. How shall we be saved? As we heard last week. Because we're never good enough. He did it through Christ and his blood. Verse 7. Redeemed inheritance. Uh, there in verse 11, in him we have obtained inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him. That is inheritance, uh, highlighting again the adoption motif, that picture there that we are brought into the number uh, that God has given us redemption, not because of our race, our social status, our wealth, or good works. The Jews, unfortunately, thought because they were Jewish or because of their circumcision or whatnot that God should love them, of course. Abraham was our father. We're special. God's like, no. That specialness was only supposed to bring you humility and repentance and faith. But unfortunately, too many did not have that. And thus we see here in the first two major points so far that redemption is all of God. It's God-centered. And the redemption that we have here, the selection of saving through the Son, is we see here in particular, in Him, all things in Christ, these are some phrases, adopted in Christ, blessed in Christ. He says a few things because, again, Paul is very dense and has a lot of, if you remember your English, clauses hanging off before he gets back to the main point of the sentence. I had to diagram this, and it took two and a half pages of diagramming. I won't do that again. A long time ago. (laughs) In fact, I bought a diagramming book. If Tripp wants one, someone diagrammed the New Testament. Yeah. In him, all things in Christ, adopted, blessed, what? In Christ. Is interwoven in these verses, especially in him, mentioned over and over and over again. Mostly in him is Christ, Jesus, the second member of the Trinity. In whom you believed. Verse 13. Uh, that first, in whom you trusted after you heard, first heard the word, that who, you who first, verse 12, First trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. And so the object of faith is Christ. The one who has given us faith is Christ. The one who's worked all things is Christ uh, for us. It is about him. It is about the second member of the Trinity and the third and the first. The Son of God is highlight and paramount here in verses 7 through 12. And the blessed salvation that we have from the heavenly places includes Christ shedding his blood for us. Our sanctification our justification, our adoption, our peace, our faith, our inheritance there at verse 11 in heaven. The fruits of the Spirit are all found in Christ and given to us by Christ. Salvation is the Son saving of His people by the cross to the praise of His glorious grace. It is the Father selecting. It is the Son saving or actually enacting and working through, as you can say crassly, I suppose, the mechanism of redemption that is Himself, the person and the work of Jesus in time and space for us. And all this comes and is applied to us in the third point. Salvation is by the Spirit's sealing of the heart. So you have selection, saving, and sealing. As you know, I did that to make it easy for you. Obviously, sealing is part of salvation, and selection is part of salvation. When I mean salvation, in the particular case of Christ, I mean His particular work, His part of our redemption. So verses 13 through 14, I hope you see there. that after he ends that section with, uh, we should be to the praise of his glory. He says, in him you also trusted, because Christ is supposed to be the specific object of faith in the gospel, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Who is the guarantee? Well, who's the who he's talking about? The Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance and to the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. So he ends that refrain again, to the praise of his glory. Verse 6, praise of his glory. Verse 12, praise of his glory. Verse 14, but particularly here, he's emphasizing what? The Holy Spirit. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All these different moving parts, to use that metaphor, of salvation involve God, the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The blessed three in one. So the Spirit sealing upon our heart. We've moved from the lofty glories of eternity past into time and space 2,000 years ago in the work of 
Jesus, and now to the work of the Spirit in the here and now, to his audience there, and to us here and now, the Spirit applies the work of Christ, the selection of the Father, into our hearts. And so it's redemption for us. Paul moved from the Father's selection to the Son's saving of his people, and now he's talking in particular about you and his audience, every individual here. In him, you also, he's, of course, assuming that everyone in his audience as an individual trusts in Jesus. We pray it's true here this evening. And so he is now going home to the point of their redemption in particular. It's not just an abstraction of eternity past. Even then it's not an abstraction. It's God chose you. And not just 2,000 years ago, Christ died for you. And now you have the Holy Spirit applying that redemption, the fruits and the effect of what Christ and the Father have done in the past to us here in the present. And he does this here by first highlighting hearing and believing the word of truth. In him, that is Christ, you also trusted, verse 13, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. We heard a little bit about this this morning. Christ's commitment to us is seen in him giving us the message itself, but also the word of God and the preaching of the word of God so that we can hear and believe. If you notice, it's, I heard the word of truth, not read the word of truth. They can read it. You read about reading, and you see in the Acts and elsewhere that they read the Bible, but often the New Testament emphasizes the hearing of the Bible, partly because, well, they didn't have books back then. Forget about that. The binding, the books that we have today that we're used to, they, they, they didn't have, they have scrolls, for example, right? It was very awkward. It wasn't very well known. So people were very much dependent upon listening and growing thereby. And that has ever been the pattern of the church since then. Even with the Bible, we want to hear the preaching of the Word. And God has given it to them so that they can be saved. In Him you trusted, you believed. You depended upon Jesus to redeem you by His blood and trusted in Him to save you because you heard the Word of truth, the Gospel, the good news of your salvation. Salvation from what? From sin. From wickedness, in whom also having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. And he moves rather quickly from your involvement, because you are there, you have to believe, you have to repent, that's true, to the work of the Spirit upon you. The Father selected, the Son saves, and now it's applied by the power of the Holy Spirit in the here and now for what we are. And God, as a reminder here, before we get specifically to the Holy Spirit, God is a God of order. And his orderliness we see here and how he saves us and delivers us. Even in these verses, although he says a lot of things you can see, it's not chaotic. It's just a lot of elements to the complexity of what it means to be saved. You say, well, salvation, I'm just, I'm just saved. I'm, I'm, I get to go to heaven. Yes, but you also have an inheritance. You also have faith. You also have repentance. You also have the work of Christ and his blood and his resurrection. All these different elements are involved in this, and they are not put there willy-nilly but they each have a purpose and a function, a cause and an effect, and the effect being to work you and to save you that you may be delivered. And so God keeps you alive in your body with what? Food, water, and sleep. You need it. And he gives it to you, and we thank him for it. And he does the same thing with our soul. He says, you need faith. He does not save you without faith. Of course, he gives us faith as a gift. Nevertheless, we have to exercise it. We must have it to be saved. That's one of the things he's given us. It's called, again, more technical terms, instrumental cause of salvation. It must be there if you're going to be saved, but you always know it's the instrument. It's not the reason or the warrant to heaven. The warrant to heaven is what Christ has done for you. You go to heaven and you say, Lord, I praise you. You don't praise the Lord for your faith. You don't say, my faith saves me. Properly speaking, Christ saves you. But it also includes this method of God, includes the Holy Spirit, the sealing of the Holy Spirit, to establish that which is genuine, to put upon our conscience that we are redeemed and saved. You are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. That's one of the functions, two or three functions, 
of the idea of seal, because that's what kings did in the old days to make sure this letter is the real letter, not a made-up letter. We have a similar thing today when you uh, clamp or put the seal there on official documents, for example, and we go to our notary, say, hey, well, I want this officiated, I did this with my father, make this the real deal. That's what part of what the Holy Spirit does for us. We have the Spirit upon us, and it's the Holy Spirit of what? Promise, promise that you will be saved to the uttermost. You will persevere because He preserves you, and you have the Holy Spirit as evidence of that. The hearing and believing are in relation to the work of the Holy Spirit. They are not independent but dependent. The sealing of salvation is upon our conscience as done by the Spirit, even as we believe and hear the Word. That's what he's highlighting here. In whom, in having believed, you were sealed. They're coordinated events. To what end? What, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession until the praise of his glory. The Holy Spirit is the earnest of the down payment of our inheritance of heaven. That we believe, that we submit to Jesus, that we are born again, that we have the Holy Spirit in particular, because he gives us the gift of believing, he gives us the assurance, he gives us the redemption of our soul, being born again. The Spirit, in particular, is the earnest or the down payment of our inheritance. And with that kind of down payment, you know God's not going to renege. That's the idea here. I just heard recently, you can put down earnest or a little bit of money saying, I am dedicated to buying this house, and if I don't, you can keep the money, right? That's called earnest money in the old days. I found out recently a lot of laws are changing. You don't have to do that anymore. You can say, oh, I changed my mind. You get your earnest money back. I didn't know that. We were blessed that we could get our earnest money back many years ago in Aurora because we're like, ah, I guess we don't want this town home. We'd rather have a house. And they were very nice about it. God's not going to do that. God's like, oh, you know, I think I'll take back the Holy Spirit. Done. I did choose you from eternity past. My son did blood and died for you, but people teach this. That's terrible. There's no hope in that redemption. It's a miserable way to live. Now, someday, somehow, God's going to renege on his earnest payment of the Holy Spirit. A thousand times, no. He's highlighting here good news, the promise, the Holy Spirit of promise. God doesn't break his promise. And he's giving you evidence of that because he knows we're weak. He says, here's, your, here's the Holy Spirit. He's your earnest that you're alive and aware of these things because you have the Holy Spirit, that you're desirous to follow Jesus because you have the Holy Spirit. So we see the pattern here. From eternity past, to time and space, to the here and now. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit is involved in our redemption. Salvation is God-centered. It is triune. The Father selecting, the Son saving, and the Spirit sealing. And because it is God-centered and triune, each member has a role in our deliverance. Each member is to be praised by the saints, just as Paul does in each section. As I said, he ends there with the praise of his glory. Verses 12, 6, 12, and 14. And so let us praise the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit for selecting, saving, and sealing our redemption. Amen. Let us pray. Indeed, God, may we stand in awe of what you've done for us, that you... Lord, did not give us a part of who you are, as <clears throat> as the Father selecting and the Son saving, and maybe, maybe not the Holy Spirit be sealing us, but the Spirit is also intimately involved because the work of God the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit is a coordinated work, for you are a united God. You're not a God of chaos and disorder, fighting amongst yourselves, God. We are gracious for that. Indeed, Lord, may we stand in awe, and may we be encouraged, especially above all, that salvation is first to last, of you, and even faith itself is part of the gift of the Holy Spirit that we are sealed with as we are believing. Gracious Lord and Savior, may we continue this week to be encouraged and strengthened day by day with these glorious, buoyant thoughts. By the name of Jesus Christ, our God and Savior, amen. Let us stand and let us sing hymn 213 to his praise and his glorious grace. 213.
the Father, glory be to God the Son, glory be to God the Spirit, God Almighty, three in one. Alleluia, alleluia, glory be to Him alone. Glory be to Him who loved us, washed us from all sin and stain. Glory be to Him who bought us, made us kings with Him to reign. Alleluia, Alleluia, praise the Lamb that once was slain. Glory be to King of angels, glory to Church's King, glory to the King of nations, heaven and earth, your praises bring. Alleluia, Alleluia, to the King of glory sing. Glory, blessing, praise eternal, thus the choir of angels sing. Honor, glory, power, dominion, thus its praise creation brings. Alleluia, Alleluia, praise the mighty King of kings. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be upon you all. Amen. Amen.